This podcast includes explicit language and situations. It is intended for adults 18 years of age and older. These thoughts and opinions are those not of any specific group, employer, or individual. Listener discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign with your hosts, Justin M. Rudin and Kelly Hanahan. Alrighty, Justin, welcome back to our podcast, Behind the Yard Sign. We are forging ahead. I can't believe we're on six already. It's crazy, huh? (laughs) It goes by fast. And we're talking a lot about in this time of so much anxiety. I mean, everyone is just like, can we return 2020? Can we take the 2020 back to the store? Because we don't want it. But here we are in the thick of it, civil unrest, global pandemic. We're all trying to keep our businesses, our jobs and all these things. And a lot of us just feel unsafe in some way, shape or form, pretty much all the time, given the uncertainty in the world. Yeah. And you're a business owner, so you can certainly speak to that. (laughs) Yeah. Outside of a global pandemic, being a business owner, your life is a crazy roller coaster no matter what. And I've been thinking the last couple of days about one of my personal heroes. Kelly, you know that I'm a fairly terrible person. Um, oh my goodness. Shush, shush, shush. Absolutely not. And as a child, one of my favorite types of jokes was Helen Keller jokes. I used to tell Helen Keller jokes all the time. It was like the late 1970s, early 1980s. Politically incorrect was like the only form of humor that there was. I mean, if you go back and you watch like even in Living Color, which was mid 90s, she was racist as heck. Like I watch the Golden Girls in the bathtub every day and they are so racist and so homophobic and so transphobic in like every single episode. The humor that they have in those shows from back then is completely unacceptable now. Fast forward 30 years, I was a general contractor. I lose my job. I am moping around the house, all upset because I got fired. (laughs) And there was a Time magazine that said, what is happiness? That's like this whole study of like the science of happiness. And I'm thumbing through it. And there's this quote from Helen Keller. And it says, so many people spend so much time looking at the door that is closed before them. They fail to notice the open window next to it. And all of a sudden, Helen Keller came back into my life in this way that was completely transformative. Here's this woman that I've made fun of for years and years and years and years and years. And she is the key to me being able to put my depression and sadness aside about this job and look for the opportunity. It just so happens that years and years go by and more and more quotes from Helen Keller like seep into my life. My husband gives me a birthday card and it's a picture of this guy like driving this car off of a ramp and it says a life without risk is nothing at all. Helen Keller. And I'm like, holy cow, what is going on here? And one of my favorite quotes from Helen Keller is um, it's very simple. It's just security is a fallacy. And I started thinking about that. I was reading this book by Josh Kaufman, my personal MBA. If you are a business owner, my personal MBA is like (laughs) the godsend because when you own a business, you don't have time to go back to school and get an MBA. You you don't have time for that. And getting an MBA is really good for like, if you're going to go work for Procter & Gamble or some humongous company, that's a great place to have an MBA as a small business owner, not so much. But one of the things that Josh Kaufman talks about in this book is this idea that when you are an employee, when you work for somebody else, your security it feels very secure. You have health insurance, you get a paycheck every two weeks, like it's very consistent. But ultimately, the security that's there depends upon one person's life. Like if I were to get run over by a bus tomorrow, I've got 21 employees, there would be no paychecks the following week because like this doesn't run without me. So like, that security is a fallacy is is very true when it comes to being an employee. Josh Kaufman talks about the idea that instead of having one revenue stream, instead of just having Justin Reardon be your revenue stream, when you're a business owner, you have many, many, many clients. Like Spade and Archer, we have, I don't know, let's say, what do you think, 2,400 consistent clients? Yeah, sure. So 2,400 streams of revenue. And if 2,300 of them are not bringing us in money at any given time, then 100 of them are. And as long as we can keep 100 of those 2,400 always bringing us some kind of consistent revenue stream, we continue to make money. And so security starts to be a bit more realistic that short of a global pandemic, (laughs) um, there's a bit more security in being a small business owner, being an entrepreneur and having multiple streams of revenue. And so I've been really interested in exploring this idea of 
security. And I mean, like even you, you do get a paycheck from Spade and Archer, but you also own a small business. Like you sell essential oils, right? I have one of those dreaded network marketing businesses that people hate. Yeah. So I was a recession kid. I did every single thing right. Always. Like I was right. I did all the things. I got good grades. I was president of everything. I got into a good school, paid for the whole thing myself, borrowed all the money, did the things, got the degrees. I have two degrees in public relations. And guess what? Still got laid (laughs) off in the recession. Yeah. So how how, how long you been working when the recession hit? I mean, I've been working since I was 14 years old, but like how long um, you've been out of school when you Yeah, I graduated with my undergrad in 08 got one of the best jobs you can get in democratic politics. I worked at the firm that did all of Obama's media buys and ads. And it was a very exciting time. And during the election process, right? I mean, yeah, like that. I mean, I wasn't on the political team. I was on the global health team for that firm. I had really great clients. It was really amazing. It was like super exciting time. And I was like, you know, you go to work every day and you're like, I can't believe I got this freaking job like hundreds of people would die for this. And I felt so proud of myself. Like I had done all the right things. And then 30% of the firm got laid off just like everybody else. (laughs) Because a lot of my clients were endowment based like Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and American Red Cross and some of these other major clients. So I was just like, wow, if I landed the job and had the career and did all the right things and still nothing is safe, well, what the hell do I do now? Did you have any alternate sources of income at that point? No, I was 22 years old. Okay, so I mean, like this I mean, was literally that whole idea of security is a fallacy right there. Literally, I mean, actually, so I mean, while I had a really great job in DC, they treat you like you're lucky to be there. So my starting salary was $37,000. And they still treat you like, you know, you need to be kissing the ground every day. But um, so I was actually I was catering on the weekends in DC. Technically, I did have a second job because I always had a second job, you know, nothing formal. So when I left DC, and wanted to explore my options, I was just like, how do I create real financial security for myself? I have a lot of student loans. Um, What do I do? And so I really got into this idea of residual income. And the thing is, a lot of residual income, we think about real estate, right? What's one of the best ways to create residual income is real estate. But like, what do you do when you're like a kid? I was 27 when I resigned from my political life and student loans. So like, you know, you do direct sales or whatever. It's like kind of how you make residual income happen when all you have is elbow grease. Well, Um, you do. Yeah, you do that. But I don't know if everybody out out there, our listener is, (laughs) is that person who thinks about residual income, you know, this is a a definitely different mindset. Uh, I think that you think of yourselves as like as just being average smart, but you just went out and find like another way to make money. How'd you do that? I definitely shopped around. I tried different things. And I a lot of it was like, this is not for me. This is not for me. And that's just like the one thing that really landed for me. Any kind of small business, regardless of the model, you have to love doing it. And you have to love talking about it because it's going to be your whole life and your whole mindset 24 seven, the way that you on your business now it's it's never off your mind i'm really lucky in that i have both you know like i don't own spade and archer you don't pay me enough to think about spade and archer every single minute every single day 365 right, right. so that's the benefit of being an employee that's what i but do if any, yeah. right that's your job <laughs> that's your job so my, the benefit for me is I, I do have this residual income business that i built early now i hustled for that you don't just build residual income overnight very easily talk about um, that talk about what your what is your residual business like what's your other source of income? What do you do? Direct sales, whether that works is, you know, you've always been hit up by someone saying, hey girl, on like, you know, <laughs> on your social media or whatever, someone pitching you for something. Is that like Mary Kay Cosmetics or like Tupperware, yeah. like those types mm-hmm. of things? Okay. That's what I do. Um, it's it's the same model. It's a team-based model. So I started out just like everybody else. And like, you know, so when we talk about concepts like core values and beginner's mindset and really building your business in the beginning for your life, that's where I'm coming from. And that's my experience because I quit a very lucrative political career and started a business from nothing in a business where you don't make money the day you start. I definitely had to build it client by client, person to person. And it's not like I'm convincing these people to sign $1,000 contracts with me. These are people who are buying essential oils, maybe 50 bucks at a time. So you kind of have to build this network um, very similarly to how you would build a network in any business. But eventually the network gets big and I do enough training. So that's where I learned how to do sales training. And that's where I learned how, you know, the emotional components of entrepreneurship and um, the power of influence and connecting better with your audience and learning how to serve them better and value-based 
networking and all of these things really came from a direct sales business training. You know, in my political career, I learned a lot of things, but sales influence, being out front, public speaking was none of that experience for me. I learned all of that in direct sales. It's a highly criticized industry for good reason. I think that criticism does weed out bad companies and we weathered the storms and all those things. I really was very lucky that I fell into that because now I balance the pros and the cons of both entrepreneurship and an in-person business. And I get both. Uh, When the pandemic first hit and I was just like, what's going to happen? The world is crazy. What if there's no more real estate? (laughs) Like at least I had safety. And I'm very lucky that I not just for our our listeners who are thinking about tangible ways to create multiple streams of incomes, but I feel like I have developed multiple streams of skill sets. So let's talk about that. I think that a lot of real estate agents get started very much how you started your direct sales business. A lot of real estate agents get started because they are a trainer at a gym or the barista at a coffee shop or they work at a really big bank and there's lots and lots of employees there and they have a a sphere of influence and they say, hey, I'm going to get my real estate license. I'm going to continue to be a trainer. And then they just start talking about every single person that they train at the gym about how they're also a real estate agent. And then they start picking up business and eventually really Real estate becomes this thing that's their main source of income versus their secondary source of income. Some people never make that transition. But I mean, that is a fairly common way that people transition into real estate because I don't feel like there's a lot of folks out there that are like, I'm going to major in real estate. I'm going to get my degree and become a real estate agent. There are a few. We talked to some. I think there are a lot of families that are real estate families that mom and dad were real estate agents. And so they become a real estate agent as well. Certainly that happens. I wonder, like, was there ever a point where you felt like, did your residual income ever become your main career? Did you, was ever a point where you led? So let's talk about that. Yeah, it absolutely did. And the thing is, I'm a big believer and regardless of what business model you're going after, when you're starting out, momentum is everything. Mm -hmm. And you're either gaining momentum or losing momentum. What really worked for me was I just straight freaking hustled. Like I was working 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. It wasn't until like literally my neck or my back hurt and was just like, I had to take a day off. You learn in your entrepreneurial journey that how to take breaks and how to apply self-care after the fact. Right. When I did a lot of intense travel, when I did a lot of programs, when I was creating a lot of content and I was had the big digital brand and all of those things, I would say I created a lot of momentum for myself. And that's when a lot of my organization was built that I'm still reaping the benefit of today. So very similar to like if you were going to invest in, you know, a very tangible, like physical residual income stream, say a rental property or whatever. The idea is you hustle on it in the beginning, you put those investments down, you invest in it in the beginning, and then you reap the benefits of it later. It's a very similar uh, process to that. After it became your main source of income, at what point did you say, I really would like to work in a larger organization or with other people or like, what was your motivation to reach out to Spade and Archer? Sure. So I would say two things. One is entrepreneurship is emotional AF. (laughs) (laughs) And things were happening in my life where it was very difficult for me to focus on my business 24 seven. You know, that's not what people have in mind when they set out on an entrepreneurial journey for themselves is imagining a place in the future where they're not emotionally capable enough um, or have enough energy to manage everything. And then a second thing is I get really bored when I'm complacent. I really crave exposure to other things, topics, skill sets, people, challenges, yeah, people, right, personalities. Yes. And I, I just got to a point too where like I love essential oils, I use them every single day. I love my people. I love teaching my people. But I got to the point where I was like, if I have to explain chemically what lavender is one more time, I might die. <laughs> it was so, your, your hedgehog concept was explaining <laughs> lavender. Yeah. Yes. I was just like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. And the thing is, I mean, that's what's great about essential oils, right? Is that we've been using them for thousands of years. The chemistry is exactly the same. It's lovely that nothing changes. But at the same time, it's like, I need to learn and do other things and They're be not challenged. Gonna, nobody's going to discover anything new about lavender tomorrow. Yeah. And I've always been like, I, I mean, in high school, I had four jobs and was president of everything. So like, yeah. I, I do bore pretty easy. That's going to be your new title, and, by the way, president of everything. <laughs> like, you know, as of right now, I only have a day job, an online business and a podcast. <laughs> That's yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking about this one, right? You're not moonlighting yes. on a podcast, are you? Okay, good. I am definitely not. One podcast <laughs> is enough. Thank you. So when I started the business, there was like four months there where I was doing it as a residual income. Then I got laid off. Then it became my real deal. And there was this period of like three months when it was just me. I didn't have a job anymore. And my company didn't have any employees. 
it was so demotivating. Like I would wake up in the morning at the crack of 10 and like go for a run and then eat some <laughs> lunch and watch some TV. I didn't have anybody to be beholden to. I just didn't do anything. Only when I got a job, then I was running a thousand miles per hour once I got a job, right? But a lot of it was like, you know, I had the website up, I had the phone, I was just kind of waiting for the phone to ring. Once I had employees, my job very much came as setting an example for my employees. Like we have our first, our first meeting every day is at 7 a.m. We have a 7 a.m., a 7.15, a 7.30, and we're done with our first three meetings by 7.45. And so before most people even started their day, I've already had three meetings. Meetings. Now, it's not really necessary for me to be in those meetings, but I go to those meetings every single day because I know I'm setting an example for the rest of my team. If I skip those meetings, they're going to skip those meetings too. And right. so because I am setting an example and because my team is motivating me to motivate them, I find it's a lot easier. I just wonder, you know, as a single proprietor, if you're a real estate agent, what is lighting that fire underneath you? If there's nobody else in your organization, if it's just you, what's lighting that fire to keep you going day after day. How do you motivate yourself 365 days a year, year after year after year after year? How do you keep going? Like you worked by so, yourself for a long time. How do you motivate? This is not, I thought at all where I thought this conversation was going to go, but I think it circles back to exactly what we opened with, which is security. Right. You're never going to hustle more in your business than when you feel insecure financially. Yes. I think that's that's 100% real. Now we're going to be speaking to your colleague, uh, and contact Adam Gilbert. Oh, you're going to love Adam. Gonna, he seems, I learned up a little bit, he seems really cool. So we can, I would love to actually ask him about some of these things. I mean, it's just kind of funny to reflect on it. Even if like, it, you know, a new agent is even listening to this podcast, chances are they're making time in their day to learn, to do the personal development, to the business development because they're feeling insecure and starting a, a new business, mm -hmm. right? Like they're here learning and what's driving them to do that. Like they're obviously listening to this podcast and not screwing around watching TV or playing video games, right? Wait, do they you think they're are, do you think they're looking for us for motivation here? Hold on. Oh. You listen to me, mister. You better get to work right now. You better work. <laughs> There, is it, are you motivated now? Are you going to get to work? I think you'd make a great motivational speaker. Yeah, I, I turned into RuPaul there for a second. That was crazy. I think you should keep your day job. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should be on stage or a non-motivational speaker. Um, I was in the office the other day, even though we must be working from home, and I saw this list of our marketing efforts that we had so adorably planned for the rest <laughs> of this year, which we did like six months ago. And we were like, oh, look how cute we are. None of this is shit is going to happen. Yeah, it was um, like... <laughs> Shake hands with 15 people a day. Deliver presents of food and sneezes to somebody's office. And we're like, no, none of that's going to happen. Sorry. None of that's going to happen. So here you are. You have a business that is, like we always say, we're not real estate, but we are in the real estate ecosystem. So a lot of things are out of our control. So we can't control those things. And we can't control that there's a global pandemic. And we can't control that there's so much civil unrest that it's even difficult to operate on social media. Like all these things. So how do you wrap your mind around trying to create a sense of security inside so much chaos. I fully realize that Helen Keller is completely correct. That security is a fallacy. And that for me to try to worry about security is a complete and total waste of time. The most that I can do is I can prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And so by constantly preparing for the worst, I'm doing things like building up savings, making sure that my credit is good so that if I need credit, I can use it. Raising my son to be a responsible human being with good morals, um, keeping my son safe. You know, one of the things that I was talking to a friend the other day, we were asked, like, are you guys going to the protests? Are you going downtown and protesting? We're a gay couple and I have a black son. And I said, no, I'm not. And and the response was basically like, um, you should be raising your son to be socially aware of what's going on out there. And I said, you know, we do our part for the Black Lives Matter movement every single day. We started 15 years ago by adopting a black boy and we are raising him to be a successful black man. And by taking my child to a Black Lives Matter protest and exposing him to one physical danger, um, I saw yesterday a kid got sprayed in the eyes by a policeman with tear gas, to putting him in danger of being infected with the COVID virus, three, mm -hmm. 
putting mm-hmm. both of his parents at the liability of either being injured, arrested, or um, being exposed to the COVID virus would lessen the chance of my son being a successful black man. Every single successful black man that is raised does his part to change how black men are treated in this society. And so I said, you know, it'd be really irresponsible of me to go to those protests right now. I am doing my part at home every single day. And that is where I'm building my security is one little tiny day at a time. Security is not a moment where you put a lock on a fence. Security Mm -hmm. is something that we build over time, over a really, really long period of time. And, you know, we make mistakes, we learn from them, we grow, we adjust, and we try not to make the same mistakes again. That to me is preparing for the worst, hoping for the best. And that's that's the closest thing I can get to security. I think you do have an, or at least as a company, we really strive for an abundance mindset but have like a healthy dose of skepticism as well. Yeah. And I think that can, you know, really coming back to like the emotional component of just running a business, which is just like, you know, good things will continue to come and not getting stuck on every possible negative thing or, you know, negative interaction or negative client experience or whatever. Like we know what we do is good and some days things just don't work out and that's okay. Security is a fallacy, like you said. Yeah. Hey, you want to talk to Adam? Yeah, let's go talk to him. Okay, you guys are going to love this guy. Okay, we'll see you over there. Kelly, let's welcome Adam Gilbert to the game. Adam Gilbert has been a friend of mine for, gosh, forever. Um, And Adam is with The Firm Commercial. He lives in Palm Springs, California. He's been in real estate for how long, Adam? Nine years now, eight years. That's amazing. He started when he was two. So uh, (laughs) he's got an illustrious career. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you. I know you guys have an existing relationship, right? You guys have been friends for a long time. How did you guys meet? Do you want to start or should I? You start because it's actually, you you tell the story really well. So we had an office in Portland and an office in Seattle. And I was interested in starting. No, I think we're in Portland only. We hadn't even started in Seattle yet. And I was interested in opening an office in Palm Springs, California. And I wrote to like 25 different agents. And I said, hey, would you be willing to meet with me for coffee or lunch? And I got like 21 like super nasty responses back there. Like, I don't have time for you. Who the hell are you? How dare you contact me? And Adam was the one guy. I got three responses back that were positive. Two that were like, I'll meet you in my office and you can talk to me for 10 minutes. Adam was like, hell yeah, let's go to lunch. And I was like, (laughs) awesome. So I went down to Palm Springs. I met him at, I think, Ty Smile. We had lunch that first day. Yep, Ty Smile. I'm sitting with him and I'm like, I don't know if he's gay. I don't know if he's straight. I don't know if he's Jewish. I don't know if he's Italian. I have no idea. And I'm just like trying to fish this guy out. And finally, my last question was like, why the hell did you agree to meet with me? And he's like, because I have no idea where my next job's going to come from. And it might be from you. And I was like, oh, this, this is my person. This is my guy. <laughs> so, and then from there, we ended up in the same business organization. We ended up in EO together mm-hmm. and we ended up like hanging out together in China and like <laughs> with a very international That's relationship. So awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I will say that uh, Justin did a really good job because uh, during that lunch meeting, he was just asking me for information. He asked me where my, one of my favorite restaurants was. And he remembered that and he actually thanked me for meeting with him and sent me a gift card to my favorite restaurant that I was able to take my wife to. He did an excellent job as well, you know, just on the, you know, reaching out and finding people on the market, um, but also with the follow up to make it a really memorable experience. So, you know, the, the friendship was born then and every time he comes into town, we tend to hopefully get together. Do you want to plug your favorite restaurant in Palm Springs? The restaurant that you got me to was Castelli's in, yeah. uh, in Palm Desert, which is, is a great one. There's so many restaurants. Jeez, it, it's tough to say. But we'll, we'll, let's go to Trio next time. Castelli's was interesting because as a tourist that goes to Palm Springs, I had never been there before. It's like this little Italian place. You expect that there would be like a mob hit at any moment. Like it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. And I had never been there before after going there for like years. So thank you for mm-hmm. exposing me to something new. Of course, it's the locals' favorite. <laughs> Adam, I, I understand that you have a law degree, like you're a JD and you're in real estate. Do you want to tell us like what that adventure was to to get into real estate? Yeah, definitely. So my whole life, I come from a family of lawyers. My grandfather was a lawyer. My two uncles were lawyers. Always going to be a lawyer. That was essentially it. So went to college, went to law school, graduated 
took the bar, passed it, came back to Palm Springs and started practicing law. My family's firm was third generation lawyer. And maybe like five months into practicing law in California at the time, if you were a lawyer, you could just sit for the broker's exam. So it's 2011, maybe early 2012, you know, and the real estate market is in the dumps still. And so my uncle was like, you should take that test. Maybe we'll buy some properties and we'll fix them up and we'll flip them, you know. At the time, property was going up 10% a year. Um, So I took the test. I just studied for the bar. So I was in study mode, passed it. And then my uncle found a property. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I had, I was my own broker. I didn't know that you were like, could go to a brokerage and like, they'll give you things and and learn. And so I fumbled my way through this property was like a $700,000 property or something. The other agent was so helpful. They like helped me like, this is the form that you need. And you know, I didn't even know about transaction coordinators or anything. I knew about contracts, but that was about it. But so I fumbled through it. He had found the property. It took me like 10 hours and I get this check for $20,000 and I was like, holy crap, like this is like, you know, a, like a quarter of like what I'm making right now as a lawyer. There's something to this business. And, uh, you know, if, I guess if you're good at sales and figure that out, which I wasn't, I was just a lawyer. Uh, but I was like, okay, there, I got the license. There's something to this and the ability to make money. And so that's how I, uh, I got hooked on, onto the brokerage side. That's so awesome. Now, I learned a little bit about you and that you're also involved in commercial real estate. So how did you make that jump? I think there's like the natural timeline of of a real estate agent, right? You start off and you take anything that you can get. So uh, that's what I did. And that's where all the my initial things where I would take leases. I remember agents would give me the clients that I just didn't have time for and like split it 50, mm. 50. And so I just took whatever I could get. And I was doing it all on the side. I was still working full time as a lawyer. So it was like, this is just kind of wow. extra cash. Um, and so I would meet with them on the weekends and then, and then do that. But then as I started to learn more, um, I started reaching out to, you know, a lot of people who kind of like the way that Justin does, um, who would eventually end up being my mentors. When I talked with people who were very wealthy, people who lived in our big golf course communities, you know, extremely wealthy people. There was two common things about them. One was that they owned real estate, mostly commercial real estate, whether it's apartments, commercial buildings, things like that. And they typically own their own businesses. You know, they weren't employees working for other people. So I'm like, okay, that seems to be the, uh, the, the, the common thread. And so that's what I decided to do, but I just kind of went time by time. So through those mentors, you know, I got my first commercial lease deal and then I took courses about you know how commercial real estate works. I took a real estate development course through ULI, which is kind of a, uh, it's a national organization for real estate development mainly, but all aspects of real estate. Um, and they really promote like sustainable design and, uh, you know, kind of the future of uh, real estate development. Very cool. I just want to call out just how much you have made it a success habit to reach out to people, see what they're into, be so open, be generous with your time. And along the way, you've developed your own like network of mentors and people who have helped influence your career. So what's your advice for someone who's new and kind of um, is interested in building their network that way? What do you recommend they do? Yeah. So the biggest thing that has been uh, effective for me is, you know, everyone's just always like, oh, well, I need a mentor. I need a mentor. I need some wise old rich person to like teach me how to do everything. <laughs> Well, like, why would they do that? You know, they've got kids and they've got their own businesses and stuff. So the biggest thing that I found, and there might be family friends or something that will do it, you know, at the beginning, but providing value to your mentor relationships is huge. So, you know, I'm in there on the, on the ground, you know, kind of learning things. I'll call my mentor and say, Hey, did you hear about this that's happening in the city? Or, Hey, I heard about this new thing called Airbnb. You should be aware of it. Being on the ground or bringing them deals or, or whatever it may be. You know, everyone has value in their own certain way. You might not know things about how to be a really successful broker, but you can provide value to people in a variety of different ways that may be interesting. That's how I did it is just everything new that I learned or things that uh, trends that I saw or types of businesses like, hey, WeWork is now a thing. Like, have you heard of this co-working thing? You've got this big office mm-hmm. building like that isn't rented. Like, here's this new trend. So that's the kind of the benefit of being new in the business is that you aren't really jaded by how things have done have gone in the past and could really look towards the future. 
I think that's one of your secrets is that you reach out. I think the other mm-hmm. secret is that oftentimes when an opportunity lands in your lap and starts sucking your dick, all you have to do is just not <laughs> bat it away and take advantage of it. So when somebody calls you up and says, hey, let's go grab lunch or, uh, you know, I've got this thing, Airbnb, whereas most people would be like, yeah, 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 just another, you know, it's my space, but for houses, it's just going to mm-hmm. fail anyway. You're the guy who's willing to like, you know, take some interest and be like, hey, what are you doing in my lap there, big guy? <laughs> um, so I think that's a huge part of being a new agent is looking for opportunities and not batting them away just because they feel like they might be a, a trick or a scam or something like mm-hmm. taking an interest in it, right? Yeah, definitely coming from a place of yes. I think that's just a, a really good perspective mm-hmm. is granted I waste I did a lot of time wasting with people who weren't serious and you know you learn that process that people do waste your time and won't sign you know representations <laughs> sure. agreements and you know so <clears throat> you, you'll figure that out but at the beginning just coming from a place of yes saying yes and then learning over time when things are real and when they're not I still sometimes I, I'd be like oh this is you can tell when things are a waste of your time but I still try to come from a place of yes and give people the benefit of the doubt because I mean there's eccentric people out there who are like this guy's a waste of my time and turns out he's worth $10 million. You know, he's just a weird right. dude. <laughs> right. Let's talk about opportunities. Um, what do you see as kind of with COVID being this just massive flop? What do you see as your flop opportunity in COVID? Like, where are you looking right now? Yeah. So I'm actually using this opportunity to really take my career of where I've gone gone to here to, to the next level. What I found um, going from lawyer to broker to investor is that I really like being on the principal investment side. And so I am going to be using this opportunity to start syndication deals, still doing my brokerage and stuff, but doing syndication deals, getting to the point of creating my own fund. But I'm going to be looking towards assets that are going to be really hit. So, you know, Warren Buffett has the old saying, you know, when people get scared, get greedy, when people get greedy, get scared. Uh, So I'm going to be looking into office, retail, the places where people are like, these things are going to get crushed. You know, I think in the long term, 10, 20, 30 year perspective, things will come back in in a large Mm -hmm. part. So, you know, I'm definitely looking at distressed retail, distressed office and those opportunities over the next six to 36 months. It sounds like you know exactly what to make out of this situation. I literally cannot stand the word pivot anymore. (laughs) Like I cannot stand it. Like it's just been beat. We need to pivot the word pivot. (laughs) You know, it sounds like you're making amazing opportunities for yourself given the situation, but what has been the most difficult part about this whole last couple of months for your business? Even though, I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously it sounds like you have a plan, but either yourself or working from home or just, you know, unanticipated changes and adapting and all that. Yeah. So, I mean, when you have your own business, you go hard all the time. Like there is no stop. So Mm -hmm. um, I think the hardest thing for me was when this happened, like all my deals fell apart, you know, I lost hundreds of thousands of commissions that were, that were scheduled to come. There was no work to do and the phone wasn't ringing. And so just like taking that step back and being like, okay, what's the next 60 days look like? Am I going to chase my tail Mm -hmm. and try to find deals that probably aren't there? And I said, no. And it was really hard but I really just took the time and I didn't beat myself up about, you know, playing video games at two o'clock in the afternoon or just like hanging with my wife. But it was such a departure from what my everyday is where it's just like filled, like my calendar is filled, call, call, lunch meeting, call, call, Mm -hmm. you know, all day. And so I think it hasn't been until like the last two weeks really where I felt the urge to really, you know, I've been kind of working on my capital company and doing things here and there, but to really like start calling people again, you know, for business reasons and not just to check in and, you know, try to start pushing deals and say, hey, look, let's take a look at where the market's at right now. That was the biggest thing for me is, you know, maybe not pivoting and and just really not doing anything. I'm always the like the squishy lovey one in this stuff because I love talking about like feelings and like the emotional roller coaster that is working for yourself. And I like it sounds like you have at least you present really well that you have a strong emotional handle over entrepreneurship. And I like like to talk about that a lot because newer brokers may or may not know what that's like. The fact that you can like settle into I'm just going to be open and go for the yes and just meet with people. And if it doesn't and if it doesn't work out, you don't take it personally or like, you know, all these unprecedented things happen and you're just like, what do I do? I could panic and fill my time with bullshit stuff. But now I'm going to take a 
beat and I'm gonna give my permission give myself permission to do stuff I don't normally don't do like I think that's that's a gift all on its own staying regulated emotionally inside unprecedented times or being able to take a hit or, or any of that so that's pretty cool I think you know a lot of people really don't do that well yeah I keep Kelly around because like when she talks about stuff like that I'm like I, my eyes glaze over and I'm like what's the metrics for that I don't know how to how to judge are we being emotionally are we being appropriately emotional during this time like did I cry enough today I'm not sure are we okay <laughs> so what is what is going on in your life man like what's your personal life like what's going on we have our first baby on the way ah, um, so yeah it's exciting uh, we're doing October so I mean that was a that was a whole thing in itself just to go th- I was gonna say conceived during COVID or not but I guess not <laughs> not not um, that, that was actually you know a process uh, you know we, we actually did IVF that's a process it yeah. is a process it's, it's an expense and yep. it's emotionally draining in a way that is hard to describe yep. and so and it's just something that you don't really share with the world <laughs> as you announce it on a podcast yeah exactly <laughs> and now, well she's pregnant now it's all yeah, good now nobody listens to this anyway it's good yeah exactly (laughs) um but yeah you know and again it's uh, another one of those things where it was just really emotionally tough and you know you go you're going through a private struggle and so that's one of the things that i also try to realize is that people are short with me on the phone like you don't know what people are going through um and so and i think that's especially for new agents that's an important lesson we judge everyone through an objective lens like this is what i'm going through and this is how they react how you presented a listing appointment may not how you think it went may not actually be how it went and that's probably why they went with someone else so you know just take it take the opportunity to you know learn grow and again my superpower is that it's also my biggest weakness my emotional spectrum is like here whereas the normal one is here i yeah. am very even uh, keeled even keeled dude yeah and so it allows me to hopefully make objective opinions and pragmatic decisions okay so yeah. our family is a little non-traditional as well we're two gay white dudes and we have a black son and when we had our kid, people would say shit to us like, oh, was he addicted to crack when you got him? Or <sighs> they would say, like, somebody asked my mom, like, why did they choose a black kid? And my mom said, because he tastes like chocolate, which I was like, that's the best response ever. Um, <laughs> oh my God, but people ask really inappropriate questions. And it it didn't really matter all that much to us. Like it was just, we could just brush it off. No big deal until my son had language. And once my son was able to speak and they would still ask super inappropriate questions like that, I would turn to my son and be like, remember how we talked about sometimes adults ask inappropriate questions? This is one of those times. And then look back at the person (laughs) and they would be like, oh, it's just that I care so much. And they really are coming from this place of caring. And with artificial insemination, your wife is a public figure. Maybe you can talk about that. Like people ask you shit that's like super inappropriate. How do you deal? Like, and you're the, tell us about your position in Bomb Springs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, it's it's actually a really interesting perspective because I'm born and raised in Palm Springs, third generation. My family's been here for 50 years. And then my wife, um, when she moved here, uh, she's a superstar, Stanford Law. All she's done is, you know, civil rights attorney work. And she decided to run for Palm Springs City Council in 2017. That was a really interesting experience. Well, first of all, when she moved here, everyone knew me, and now everyone only knows her, and I'm now Mr. Christie. That's uh, chopped so liver, funny. chopped liver. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm chopped liver now. Um, but no, she's done an amazing job. But yeah, when you, ha- the craziest things happen is that when you're out in the public, you know, people feel really open to criticizing politicians and their decisions. And so they'll say, they'll just say things to me and mm-hmm. their husband and, you know, rumors go afoot and it's a small town and all sorts of stuff like that. But yes, people will say really inappropriate things to me all the time um, about her, about what they think about her, about rumors that they've heard. It's it's a really weird place to be, especially in a business context, because people will be like, oh, well, your wife's on the city council, so uh, you're gonna get us some special treatment, right? And I have to be like, absolutely not, just to be clear, you know? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I would imagine that what you described about how gr- how much of a grounded person you yeah. are, that can really help. Because if someone was not equipped with that skill set, 
I feel like that lifestyle would be really difficult. Yeah, yeah, and especially being able to take uh, the second seat and you know, you, push it, pushing her forward. You know, yeah. so, when somebody uh, says like you've got it in on the city council, you can't even be like you know, ha ha. You can't like you have to like be blatantly clear like that's oh, not going to happen. Yeah, I have yeah. to be very clear and yeah normally when someone says something inappropriate you you laugh it off right but, you know the, i mean our city specifically has a history of an fbi raid within the last five years of from a public official who was taking bribes so you know i have to be and just to be clear that was not your wife right not not my wife no <laughs> okay good, good. Um, <laughs> so um but yeah i have to be very clear and it's i'm trying to sell them a property right so I can't just be like hey by the way like that was an inappropriate thing to say and now let's continue. It's like, no, you know, you have to do it in a way that he's like, hey, we have a history in this city. So I just want to be very clear that that's not the case. I can't tell you more about the property. But it, it, it definitely yeah, puts you sure. in an awkward situation. Um, I'd say the benefits of her position have been fantastic, though, just meeting everyone, you know, attending a lot of events. So, you know, getting involved in your city, getting involved in nonprofit boards, which I'm a part of many, um, is a great way to get entrenched in the community as well. So definitely uh, consider those options. That's so awesome. And like my, my, like I'm the marketing communications person and I love that stuff. And I used to work in politics, but now I'm in real estate. And like, obviously those are two different buckets, but now your life is totally mixed with all of those things. So like, how would you say that your brand has changed either evolved over your own profession or in addition to now your wife's brand, which is so different than real estate. Yeah. And now you're kind of like this pair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're fortunately linked. Fortunately, People. unfortunately, you know, you did think <laughs> yeah. it with the bad, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, especially being a real estate developer. Um, and so I've avoided a lot of potential projects in the city of Palm Springs um, as a result of not wanting to put her in an uncomfortable position and saying that, you know, we're mm -hmm. using, you know, undue influence in that regard. Uh, so I've passed sure. on projects and I've given them to other people um, a lot over the last few years. Um, but my brand is actually fairly interesting because uh, I was just cleaning out my garage uh, last week. And so I found like all the history of my real estate signs. So <laughs> I started off, you know, just again, I just needed to create a shingle while I was practicing law. And so I created Pop Real Estate Group, um, which is kind of like a mnemonic positive outlook personality that me and my friends use to like keep everything pop and keep everything going. So I, I did that for um, maybe a couple of years. And then I got my first partner. Um, and so we created the Gilbert Averyette brand, which is our last names. Under that brand, we, I think we grew to like 11 agents. And we also had a, a vacation rental management company. And so we were doing Airbnb vacation rentals all throughout the desert. We had about 35 properties. Um, and we sold that business to uh, Turnkey, uh, which is a venture-backed uh, vacation rental management company out of Austin, Texas. Um, and I did that for vacation rentals are a... Uh, interesting topic in, in the Coachella Valley and, and everywhere, I'm sure in Portland as well. So I, I can't say that one of the reasons in, in the back of my head for selling that company was just because, again, it puts undue stress on her and the politics and, you know, outside of just being a pain in the ass to manage a bunch of properties. Every decision that I make, every project that I take on, I'm thinking about how it will reflect on us as a, as a couple, on her as a politician. You know, it's just something that that's in the back of your head and influencing your decisions all the time. Okay, so you're going into this new venture capital firm, which is where you're going to do capital funds, sorry, for mm -hmm. commercial buildings um, and like hotels and retail and uh, commercial warehouse and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you're just now starting that. We talk a lot about core values on Behind the Yard mm -hmm. side, which is like the most boring business topic ever. But I'm super interested in that, like, because this is just now getting started, what is your process that you're going through to actually define your core values? I think a lot of us stumble on our core values very few of us go through a conscious effort to define them. What are you doing to work on that right now? Yeah, so the, the new capital company is actually pretty exciting. We're just on the ground floor. Um, we've got a working title of Pragmatic Capital because uh, AG and PR are the initials of the principles. So Prag and then Pragmatic. So uh, I thought that worked out. Um, and so we just created the logo. And what we did is actually we did a TTI test. I got access to those tests through uh, my EO network. And Tell us what a TTI test is. Yeah. So it's a per, it's a mixture of like kind of like a personality test and a, and a disc test. Um, like strengths about, and weaknesses, that kind of thing? Yeah. Strengths, weaknesses, but also if you're a promoter versus a collaborator. So it'll go into whole a whole mm -hmm. analysis of like, Adam, you know, isn't great at managing people and if you want to uh 
but he's a pragmatic person. So if you want to deal with him, you've got to give him short facts and evidence-based, you know, analysis of how to do that. So I took that test and then my partner took the test as well. And luckily we're on opposite sides of the circle. So we have different um, skill sets, which is cool. a really good thing of uh, what you want to do. But also it just gives yeah. a really nice analysis. So it says, these are their strengths. These are their weaknesses. For example, I have a weakness of confrontation. Um, and so I'll typically, you know, be around the bush about, you know, about an issue and like try to allude to what it is instead of being direct, like, hey, Justin, you got to be do this more. I don't want you coming into the office unless, uh, you know, you're dressed appropriately, which is, no one has ever said to you. I don't um, have on pants right now, just <laughs> so you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so but knowing that and having him read my analysis and me reading his, I think it'll be good for helping make sure that we're, we start off on the right foot. Um, but also, I think it's going to be the basis for establishing our core values um, and highlighting the couple of things that we each do well. Also, the test is really beneficial because it lets us know where we're not on the circle. So that mm -hmm. will influence either an additional partner or a potential first hire um, in order to fill those needs in our company. We did something. I kind of, I kind of like myself and a coworker, like we, we talked Justin into it. We did something similar. I don't know, maybe about, you know, this was like pre COVID life. We did the disc assessments for the whole company and we all got to compare. And I, I thought that was really cool. And I think people learned a lot about themselves because our business is extraordinarily team based mm -hmm. and collaborative. So it's just like no one can basically do their job outside of the team and everyone was so different. So I think it really allowed everyone to uh, appreciate each other's gifts and be a little bit more understanding or graceful and things that are people either were working on or are just not their thing. It also made me understand that if I just hired a bunch of Justin Reardon's that we would just be, it would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and we needed, we needed some un-Justins to make this thing work. So thank God for Colin Kelly. Chad and I are exactly the same. Chad runs our creative department. And I mean, we oh. are like word for word, like the exact same profiles, but having the other people round us out makes things a lot easier for sure. And yeah. I set my analysis to my wife too so that she can uh, communicate totally she's like you know it's dead on you know so but did it, she it's do it help with uh she had done one previously and it was dead on for her as well it's, so it's amazing because it, it's a self-assessment how yeah. accurate these things are is it the yeah. same as you or very different than you very different I would imagine that's the case in most relationships. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it's nice to have evidence to be like, see, this is why you find me such a pain in the ass. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dude, don't you feel so validated? <laughs> 100%. <laughs> so we like to talk about, again, I do it in my mind for like the emotional roller coaster of business owning, but um, we like to do something called highs and lows, mm -hmm. which is just talking about your best and worst times in real estate mm -hmm. and how things were when you got started or how even, even now, just so people can really understand and relate to how much of a roller coaster real estate is in general, as we've seen in entrepreneurship and running your, your own thing. So tell me a little bit about your absolute best day in real estate when you felt like, yes, I was put on this earth to do this. Yeah. So uh, I'd say my best day was a little over a year ago. And it's when I was able to close on my commercial building. And so I bought a 16,000 square foot, 100% vacant, like old strip center, but it's like in the perfect location in the heart of downtown Palm Desert. It's just been, it was just sitting there with, you know, some private equity guy out of Beverly Hills owned it for years and just didn't have it for sale, didn't have it for lease. But when I closed on that building, it was just like, ah, this is like all the work that I've done, like culminated yeah. in this point. And it was just like, so exciting. It was extremely scary at the same time because I took over this building. I had no tenants. Um, it was more money that I ever spent. I don't own a home. Um, all my money has only gone, gone into investments, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was like jubilation. I don't think I'll ever be able to, you know, I'll, I'll be chasing that high for the rest of my life again. That was a really exciting day. I was going to say, you know, it, there has to be some emotional component to that because it's not just about the dollar amount. It's not just about the size of the building. It's not just about those numbers. It's about a pride and how proud of yourself you were and the work you had done to get to that point. So like, and, and I think there is something magical when you are in that building your business for your life mm -hmm. kind of place when you first start out and you finally like get, you know, you slay that big dragon because it is scary. Like I think that the, the most magical piece about that story you just shared is how scary yeah. it was. And it's excitement 
is just yeah. scared minus fear. Like if you take excitement, you <laughs> add fear to it, you get scared. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they're the same sides. They're the opposite sides of the same yeah. coin. And, you know, yeah. both of them give you that feeling like, oh, man, I got to go pee. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they can exist in the same space so well together. And so many of us choose to take the fear route that we we fail to see the excitement when we're scared. And, you know, that's such a great feeling. If you can reach that, means you're alive. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, it's my goal, you know, and. 20 or 30 years to be that guy who owns, you know, 50 buildings or whatever. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that, you know, especially if those are the mentors that you're going after, they all, unless they inherited it, you know, they all started with that one and they were right. scared as hell, For sure. you know? And so just yeah. having that perspective on people's journeys and past, you know, we, we tend to put the people who have been successful later on in their lives, you know, on this pedestal. Um, but they all, they yeah. all started somewhere. So. Yeah. Tell us about, okay, we talked about the really good day, which was scary in itself. Tell us about the the most difficult day in business. Like, what was the day that you were like, holy cow. This sucks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I think the most difficult day was when I decided to stop practicing law and do real estate full time. So I had, you know, I'd grown the the kind of side business and I started working with a partner and, you know, I was probably making the same, you know, in both, but I was just getting way too much. And the question was like, I don't this fork in the road, right? Am I going to be a lawyer and do this stuff on the side or am I going to go full added into real estate? And, you know, luckily, you know, I had those mentors who I talked to who, you know, helped kind of assure me, but Try, try telling your Jewish parents that after, you know, three years of practicing law that you're you're going to go into real estate and, and work for yourself. You know, it's just like not what is done. Um, but, you know, so that was like a really scary decision um, because I didn't know if I was making the right decision. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, but at the same time, I'm like. I keep my license active just in case, you know, I still do, I still do my, uh, my continuing legal education. I pay my bar fees every year because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you, you just never know. Um, so it, it's still, it's still scary to this day. Adam, do you want to tell us where we can find you on the interwebs? Um, so I'm everywhere. Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. I'm on it all. Um, you can I'm on mostly- the TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok's, TikTok is amazing. Like that's a whole other topic. Um, but it's Adam Gilbert 13 at for pretty much all of them. Uh, Adam Gilbert is one of my most favorite people in the world. He is generous and he is as smart as he is handsome. Uh, we've been friends for years. Uh, he's in Palm Springs. If you need somebody in commercial or residential real estate or in law, or just a dude to like have lunch with, Adam Gilbert is your man. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Adam. How great is that guy? Oh, Adam is so sweet. I really enjoyed talking with him. Just sharp as a tack, man. He's like, you got a question, he's got an answer for you. It's Yeah, fantastic. I love that we talked about, you know, security and, and entrepreneurship and stuff because I felt like he was like perfect for that. He had a lot of really great points around what he's experienced personally. So that's really cool. If you ever get a chance to meet them, they are like the Ken and Barbie of Palm Springs. They're yeah. open-minded and sweet and good-looking and smart. And it's just like, oh my God, could you guys be any more perfect? This is craziness. And I think something I'd love to talk about now with you is an additional reflection, not just with Adam's experience in real estate, but what's going on a little bit for everybody. I'm calling it kind of like entrepreneurial motivation and how we do this at home now and how we do this with that dreaded word pivot that I hate. Um, Hmm. But how we all, whether you're an agent and maybe you're doing more at home than you ever have before, or like, you know, the rest of the company is now, we're all working at home more than we ever have before. And so whether it's, you need to answer to yourself in side of your job job or you're answering to yourself in your entrepreneurial journey it's just like this is a really different for a lot of people and how how do you stay accountable to yourself yeah i mean first let's go back to the word pivot here for the first three weeks of the covid pandemic pivot was the word on the tip of everybody's tongue and then there was this massive pivot and suddenly pivot became the pivot word that people just wanted to pivot against and then we became pivoted and (laughs) it was so crazy i've never seen a word be so love affair to so hate so fast. It was crazy. Working from home 
I was really dreading it in the beginning. I didn't want to work from home. I wasn't super interested in it. Now that I'm working from home, my husband is like, so when exactly are you going back to work? Because yeah, right? that would be nice. Yeah. Get the hell out. <laughs> but then I'm, I'm doing things that are like, you know, oh, my meeting starts in five minutes. I guess I should put some clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so much more efficient because we just don't drive anywhere. We don't buy any yeah. gasoline. We, you know, you used to have an hour long meeting and you'd have to block out two hours, a half an hour to get there, an hour long for the meeting and yeah. a half an hour to get back. And that's just not the case anymore. And I feel like employers everywhere are figuring that out and they're saying, okay, well, we're no longer going back to the office, which by the way, is going to decimate commercial real estate. So we're going to see commercial real estate rates dropping yeah. because so many people have figured out that they can run their businesses from home. The big question here is how do you motivate when there is bathrooms to be cleaned and video games to play and Kimmy Schmidt is just released a new season and you got to watch how unbreakable she is. How do we motivate when there's so many distractions? It's really interesting. You know, I did have a life where I was working from home and working for myself and had to be a self-starter and did it. And at the time when I first started it, my business with my ex, he also chose a work from home path. He was a federal employee, is a federal employee. And so we were working in the same space, like the same space, because we were in like this lofted bedroom scenario inside this three story house in San Diego that I moved into with my friends. It was like real world San Diego. And he's doing his federal government stuff and I'm launching a business. And we were just like, oh my God, it just got to the point where I was just like, I can't even listen to you breathe anymore. This is so annoying. So I mean, aside <laughs> from like the logistical changes, like our homes and stuff were not pandemic ready. <laughs> you know, right. like, like, even right now, my quarantine buddy is a psychologist, and he sees his patients on zoom in, in, in the room. And so my Wi Fi isn't great in the back of the house. So sometimes even though there's plenty of space in the house, the Wi Fi, we have to huddle around a great connection. So <laughs> there are some things like that that make working from home difficult, not to mention, I think the added stress of just what's going on in the world, I think makes it very difficult for people to focus, at least the first couple of weeks in the pandemic, I know I woke up every Every day we had our meetings and I would listen to Governor Cuomo talk about what was going on in the pandemic in New York City just because um, how bad things were. And that's just like such an emotional load to put on in a really scary times. And try to work. You're trying to work. You're trying to stay up on things. You're trying to find a productive space, especially if your work is more emotional, like my quarantine buddy. His job is very emotional. He's very empathically gifted. So it, it's very emotionally taxing. And it, it is actually very difficult for him to have no space, no emotional space between his work and, and his, his life, life and his home life. Yeah. So some people, I think, struggle more with that than anything. I think all of us are struggling with that. Yeah. And, you know, if you're sheltering in place with other people, there's needing to set boundaries and, you know, not be in the same space as them. Like, I don't have an actual workspace. I'm sitting in a dining room chair. My computer is on top, on top of our bed. Like, I'm in the bedroom because this is the one quiet space that I can be in. Mm -hmm. My husband is in the living room reading. My son is in his room doing math homework. You know, we are constantly trying to rotate around each other and find our own private spaces. Then there's the other thing that, like, if you're sheltering in space by yourself and you're trying to do this on the lonely, not having any human interaction yep. and how that starts to wear on your body and then try to do either one of those things and try to still run a business or run a real estate company or try to sell houses or try to communicate with your people and then add on top of that murder hornets and civil unrest and pandemics and wasn't there an earthquake in Southern California last week too? I mean, it's just like, it seems to be never ending and I think we're starting to get fatigue fatigue off yeah. of this and how long does it take where you get past the fatigue and this becomes real life like this is just what how we live and then you know the other day i was talking about this idea that we would go out uh my city's going to open up uh here in two business days mm -hmm. and you know we are there'll be restaurants again and i thought yeah. about the idea of like going out to a restaurant and that sounded really scary to me because yeah. i'm so used to just staying in my house i haven't left my house in almost four days and i've been completely fine with that like not even stepped out the front I door know. and i'm okay with that whereas like a year ago that would have never been okay you know, know. How, how do we start to come back out of our shells and make people feel comfortable to be around us again? I think time will tell with the reopening. Very similarly, I have a friend, his birthday is on Friday, and mm -hmm. he he himself, first of all, he lives right off of Mississippi, uh, right here in Northeast Portland. And, and if you're not from Portland, Mississippi Avenue is this cute little like, so it's cute. its own little town. It has restaurants and bars and shops.
cops and it would be like when Lady Gaga comes to Portland she hangs out in Mississippi yeah and so he is personally interested in Mississippi and all the restaurants and bars doing well but he also has two rental properties um, attached to his home so he is financially interested in that Mississippi survive because it will be such a draw for great tenants and all that stuff so for Mm -hmm. his birthday he's like all I want to do is like let's just go pour all of our money into Mississippi so it like reopens all that stuff which is great and like I'm excited to be out in the world again with the same time as kind of just like I kind of want to let everyone else go first <laughs> right kind of terrified you're like can yeah. I can I wear two masks would that yeah, help yeah like how are we going to be like in a bar like I don't like I'm I'm like I'm I'm interested to see kind of how awkward it will be you know right. like are people going to really monitor in a bar how closely they're standing because I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out on the 12th people are dying to get out right. we'll see what happens but I think I will have a lower threshold for social activity just like you said but now it's become second nature to me just to be inside all the time and I did my first social thing with somebody else besides my family um, I've been to work a couple of times I've been around my employees and so we've social distanced during that but I actually met with a friend I went to a park the park has permanent ping pong tables that are installed and we brought our own paddles and our own balls and we hit the ball back and forth Fun. and the rule was that I chased the ball because I was the one who touched the ball and so we stayed six feet away from each other and we talked while we played ping pong Funny. and that was my first little step and so I think for all of us we will find our first little step that makes us comfortable and eventually work our way back into being a regular society again. This isn't over. It's not. No. And it won't be over until we find a vaccine, which I'm sure they will find a vaccine at some point. And right. at that point, this will start to end. But I mean, we're still in the thick of it, man. They're talking about a second wave in October. And there are so many employers who have announced like, oh, we're just just stay home. Just like we're not going to plan on taking you back in. I don't I don't blame major corporations because what are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, everyone come back. And then and there's peak too and they just send everybody home again and they just send everybody right. like it's just so disruptive so like right. i get it but like even in real estate even in staging we heard the other day that a lot of people are looking for now for like the one office isn't enough anymore we have to stage for two offices in order to yeah. really be able to list homes competitively just because life has changed so much so we had a client reach out to us he's got a five bedroom house And in the fifth bedroom, he was like, that bedroom doesn't have a closet. And the closet is like in the hallway just outside of it. And he's like, I want you to set that up as an exercise room. And I was like, oh, you know, people are pushing so hard to have offices because people are working from home right now. We really think, even though it's less expensive for us to stage an exercise room because you put a couple of Yobo mats and a couple of Yobo balls in there, call it exercise room. We would put a desk and chairs and stuff in there for it to be a home office. It's more expensive for us. But we were like, hey, people really, really, really want home offices right now, I feel like this would be a bad idea to stage this as an exercise room instead of a home office. And so, you know, as much as we can get those spaces in there, the, the better it is. We had one today where like they weren't planning on staging the ADU. And I'm like, that ADU is so valuable right now because oh my God. somebody can have a second space to go yes. to to work. And I'm like, we need to stage this ADU. This is going to make this house sell. And it was like, we were still in a pre-COVID mindset. And I think we really need to put ourselves as, as, as real estate professionals into a post-COVID mindset of like these are the things that are super duper duper appealing in houses. We had a house that we staged yesterday. I think the whole house was maybe 900 square feet, three bedrooms, but there was this random little hallway nook with a slanted ceiling that went down to the floor. And we stuck an office in there. Hell we are yeah. sticking offices everywhere we can because people want those suckers so bad. I'll out myself a little bit here just because I mentioned in our previous interview, you and I were talking about my business and me choosing to, because of personal reasons, go back to work as well. But my husband at the time always worked from home and we're divorced now. So, but at the time, I really do feel like for a long time, he wouldn't go get a co working space. It was always at home. So, like, basically, our issues. And the struggle and the emotional struggle we were having, which were very normal relationship things, just were so exacerbated by the fact that he was always here. Mm-hmm. And we're hearing this all the time. People are having so many relationship issues inside quarantine time because it's so unnatural. <laughs> we're used to having our right. own lives. Right. And so like when I say him working from home really had a huge impact on the end of our relationship, I'm not really exaggerating. It was a huge reason of why I left the house to go get another position somewhere else and how I ended up at Spade and Archer. But just sharing that 
to really underline how important productive workspaces are, not just for yourself and not just for your job and the work you're trying to do, but to emotionally be able to operate in a space that also isn't the same place where all your other emotional issues live. And now we don't have the choice to do that. So it's like, if you can make that extra bedroom a separate space with a door and try with all your might to say this, this magic wall and door is going to become a separate emotional space for me. I think that will serve people the best in terms of having the motivation and the emotional energy to really pour themselves into their work. It was the first thing I did when I started this Petty Archer. We had a guest bedroom that was downstairs. It was, you had to walk through my husband's office through a bathroom into the guest bedroom. And the first thing I did was I went on Craigslist and I bought a desk, a chair, two side chairs and some bookshelves. Mm -hmm. And I took the bed that was in there, I took that out and I made it into an office because I needed to commute. I had to have a physical barrier to be like, now you're at work versus being at home. When I closed that door, my family left me alone for eight hours and I sat in there and I worked. And it was one of the things that really helped me to motivate. And so that home office space, maybe that's what we're talking about today, is that home office space, is building that home office space so that you can have a physical space that says this is where you're in work mode. You are not in home mode when you're here. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are are realizing the emotional components of stepping into a space that is emotionally neutral, which we're trying to like make it as much as possible, or just emotionally separate and apart. So like you having, taking that bed out there says this is no longer a communal space, this is for me. This is where like my brain can operate separately. Even my quarantine buddy, like I said, a psychologist, he used to walk to work from his apartment in the Pearl to the place where he had to practice and would walk home. Well, that walk to work and that walk home from work was his kind of like ramp up, get in the mood for work and then be able to decompress back. And he misses it so bad. I'm like, it's well, when you're, when you're done with your patients, just go walk around the block a few times and come back. It's all lived, you have. When I lived in San Francisco, I had a choice. I could either take the cable car or I could walk to and from work and both were about 15 minutes. And that ramp up and ramp down during the walk because you really get to let go mentally while you're walking. When yeah. you're on a bus, you're still like, you know, who's that guy with a knife next to me, you know, is this person going to barf on me? I don't know. When you're walking, there's so much like you can just go mindless and really get into it. So I, I feel it, man. I, I, I'm with your, what do you call him? Quarantine buddy. Your quarantine buddy. I'm with your buddy. My the quarantine walk boyfriend. Is Everyone needs a quarantine man, you know, do things around the house. <laughs> Amen. Talk with, you know, take the trash out, you know, all the, all the important things. Our music is composed and performed by Joff Metz. If you have a story that you'd like to tell, reach out to us. You can find us at spade-archer.com. This has been Behind the Yard Sign. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Justin. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.